So as we move into the Gospel of Luke, I want to just give a little background information. I'm not going to go into great detail, but uh, we, we believe that, as is the name given to this book of the Bible, Luke, um, that he is the one that wrote it, the traveling companion of Paul, that beloved physician. Um, you don't find his name um, as, hey, I, Luke, am you know, going to be the one that is going to put all this down. Um, but there are, there are clues. Um, the early church fathers certainly believed that it was him. Men like Justin Martyr, Tertullian, all identified him as the one that was writing. Um, Luke um, does mention himself in the book of Acts. So what you need to know is that Luke and Acts, it's a two-volume work, right? So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And in Acts chapter 16, we get an indication that it was Luke um, because we find what are called the we sections. So you can see that in Acts chapter 16. Um, he's writing to a Gentile by the name of Theophilus, and he is a recipient of both of these books. Um, the second volume, um, Acts, ends in 62, approximately 62 AD, with the imprisonment of Paul. So um, that is, it can't be written earlier than that because that event has to happen before you write about it. So it can't be written, um, Acts couldn't have been written before 62 AD. There's no mention in the book of Acts nor in the Gospel of Luke of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So most people place it somewhere in that time frame, in the, in the 60s, uh, when Luke and Acts were written. So you can, you know, take that. It's maybe interesting. You can help fit it into some other um, timeline issues uh, throughout the, the New Testament. Um, this is one of the books. It's not written some of the unique features of the Gospel of, of Luke. As, again, it's a two-volume work. Um, it was written by a Gentile. Luke was a Gentile. Um, not written by an apostle. And it was addressed to a, a Gentile, Theophilus, although the body of Christ at large benefited it. He will provide... One-third of his material is going to be different than the other Gospels. Of course, there's a lot that overlaps, but a third of what Luke writes down is going to be different than the other Gospels. So um, we'll leave that with kind of our introduction and just move into verses 1 through 4. And here uh, we find Luke's purpose for writing to Theophilus. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So he's a believer. He's had some information. But Luke says, I want to write to you, and I want to give you, a, just, I want to fill in the blanks. And um, he would have been familiar with this. We don't know exactly what relationship Theophilus had with Luke. Um, you can speculate all day long. Um, the one speculation that I've heard is maybe um, Luke was uh, a, a former slave, and that would have been common in those days. Yet you would have a physician that would have been a slave, and that maybe Theophilus was his, um, his master. Maybe, maybe not, don't really know. But I want you to see something in these four verses. 
Just a couple of phrases. In verse 1, set in order. Towards the end of verse 1, been fulfilled. In verse 2, eyewitnesses. In verse 3, perfect understanding. The middle of verse 3, an orderly account. Verse 4, the certainty of those things. As he writes to Theophilus, he wants him to be aware that what he's hearing is believable. It is true. Now Luke's purpose is to write an orderly account. He wants to put it down. He is probably the one that would be the, the one that has the greatest emphasis upon the historical um, of all the Gospels. But the introduction of the Gospel of Luke um, does not read like any of the other Gospels. Um, his actually reads more like a secular work. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, many of you will have heard of the historian by the name of Josephus. And that was a secular work that was um, put down to give a history of the nation of Israel. And so I want to read to you, it's a compressed um, version of the, his preface of his two-volume work as well. So he had two volumes. Let me just read to you what Josephus put in place. And you can just look at verses 1 through 4 and you can see the similarity. It says, In my history of our antiquities, most excellent Epaphroditus, I have, I think, made sufficiently clear the extreme antiquity of our Jewish race. Since, however, I observe that a considerable number of persons discredit the statements in my history, I consider it my duty to devote a brief treatise to all these points, to instruct all who desire to know the truth concerning the antiquity of our race. As witnesses of my statements, I propose to call the writers who, in the estimation of the Greeks, are the most trustworthy authorities on antiquity as a whole. In the first volume of this work, my esteemed Epaphroditus, I demonstrated the antiquity of our race. I shall now proceed to refute the rest of the authors who have attacked us. So you can, it, it doesn't, it's not a copy, obviously. It's not like a template. But you can hear the similar type of address. And so um, this is how um, Luke approaches putting all of this down. So he mentions that in verse 2 that he talked to eyewitnesses, that he had a perfect understanding of it. He wanted to put together an orderly account. He wanted Theophilus to know that there was a certainty of the things that he had been instructed in. In other words, you're not believing a myth, a legend, or a fable. This is something you can count on. 1 Timothy chapter 3-4. through four. Now we just finished 1 Timothy and we, we referenced this um, idea of fables many times in that. Uh, that letter. And so I want to just read to you again. 1 Timothy 1 verses 3 through 4. As I urge you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So the Bible is able to distinguish between that which is accurate, orderly, certain, and that which is full of fables and mystery. The Bible is familiar with these two different concepts. Not a big news flash there, but the way some people attack the Bible, it's as if they thought that these people were just were mindless, you know, uh, 
cave people that were just scratching out a few things on a, you know, stones and they had no idea what they were doing. They were dumb, uneducated people. Far from it. And actually, in 2 Peter 1.16, we find a, a, another similar statement. It says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we may, made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Do you see the point here? They, they could, the Bible talks about fables, and it talks about that which is true. It talks about that which is certain, that which has eyewitnesses to it. And this is the way Peter, of course, was an eyewitness to it himself. Luke is recording those eyewitnesses. Now, when the New Testament was written, it was written at a, at a time when all who would have seen these things, or a vast majority of, the, the, of those who witnessed the life, the teaching, and the ministry of Jesus, they would have still been alive when hot off the press came you know, Luke volume 1 and then Luke volume 2 known as Acts. If it wasn't accurate and you have people that are following Jesus, what do you think would have happened? People would have said, no, 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 no. That is not accurate. This is not the way things went down. So I just bring this out so that you can understand and know that what you have in front of you is something that um, inspired of, the, of, the, of God, right, is God-breathed, and so we can trust it there. But the men who wrote were also dedicated to giving you an accurate account. They weren't just in some kind of ecstatic state writing furiously information on a piece of paper. They were deliberate, distinguishing between that which was true, that which had eyewitnesses to it, that which was not a fable and not some kind of mystery or legend. So what we have here is a historical account of the life, ministry, and the teaching of Jesus Christ. You can know what Jesus was like. You can know what Jesus thought. You can know how Jesus responds. You can know what heaven thinks about some of the most important matters, the most important matters in this life. And that ought to excite and generate uh, every one of us to go to the Word of God and to study these. And um, I kind of feel like those Greeks that came to Philip and said, Sirs, we desire to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Now, we don't get a personal sit-down, face-to-face, you know, bodily experience with Jesus like they were requesting, but we have that which God has given to us, and we can see Him as we open up the pages of Scripture, and we get to look on a black and white portrait, as Malcolm and Alwyn sing, of a king who's a friend of mine. And you, this is what we have in front of us. So read with that expectation. We keep on moving on here. In verse 5, it says, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea. And you can almost hear the dun-dun-dun-dun kind of background music to that, that little statement right there. So he wants to put together an orderly account. He writes about real people, okay? Uh, Herod was a real person. Judea is a real region. He's going to talk about real cultural things. He's going to write about um, real people with real experiences. And it begins right here, the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Herod the Great, that one that's known for all the things that he built, 
Now, if you go to Israel, you can't avoid seeing what he built. I mean, you, you could, but you would have to work really, really hard at not going and seeing the things that he built. If you go to Masada, you see the things that he built. If you go to Jericho, you'll see the things that he built. If you go to Jerusalem, you will see the things that he built. It's all over the place. He was known as a master builder. And that was a contribution he made. However, everything else was a nightmare that he did. Everything else. His rule was in Judea from 37 to 4 B.C., in the year 19 B.C., he embarked on an extensive remodeling of the temple that Joshua and Zerubbabel had rebuilt. If you, if you ever hear a reference to the temple that Jesus went to, it'll often be referred to as Herod's temple. It's like, this is an ungodly guy. Why do we call it Herod's temple? Well, he's the guy that funded and kind of uh, engineered the rebuilding of it. But it's Joshua and Zerubbabel who had rebuilt that temple. And so Herod did a massive renovation to it. But so significant was it that even this creep of a guy was given that that temple is called after him. Um, Why a creep of a guy? Well, because he had some... He was a fearful man, and he was afraid that people were always trying to take his kingdom away from him. And so what ended up happening was that um, he would kill wives. He had some ten wives. Um, And it actually was said that it was safer to be a pig than to be a son. Because if you were the son and you happened to look with too much admiration at something he had done, he would rather just kill you. Then find out whether or not you were admiring him or you were wanting what he had. But what he is most well known for in Scripture is the decree to have all the little baby, uh, baby, little baby boys in Bethlehem put to death after hearing the wise men mention and declare to him that they had seen the star of a king and they had come to worship the king of the Jews. He inquired of the religious leaders, and they said, well, the king of the Jews is going to be born in Bethlehem, just a short little walk from Jerusalem, where he was, down into this little village called Bethlehem. And so he had all of the children, uh, young boys, put to death in an attempt to kill Jesus. But, of course, Joseph and Mary had received a warning from uh, the Lord in a dream, and they had fled down to Egypt. So he was a guy that cast a, a, a Big, dark shadow over the whole land. So I've called this section, verses 5 through 17, good news during dark times. Herod being in place was a reminder, you're not in control. You don't have the power to rule over yourself. Another interesting thing about Herod was that he was a descendant of, does anybody know who he is a descendant of? Esau. So you know Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers, right? The Israelites descend from Jacob, and from Esau came the Edomites, and then the Idumeans, and he was one of those Idumeans. And so um, he was, uh, this struggle that happened even in the womb um, continued on between Jacob and Esau, and then their descendants, and even down to this very moment. 
And when you think about that struggle of the descendant of Esau trying to destroy the descendant of Jacob. And it's just it's a very interesting thing to track down. You might want to read Obadiah. It has a lot to do with uh, the Edomites in this struggle. So it's dark times. It's scary times. It's un, um, uh, it, it, you never know what's going to happen. You never know what this crazy guy, what his next whim or his next fear is going to be and what the ramifications are going to be. Continue on in verse 5, it's during these days of the king Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, his wife was the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. These were some good people. They loved the Lord. They were followers of Yahweh. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. That's a lot of detail. I mean, that's, a, that's a lot of detail that is being given um, by Luke, who wants to set out an orderly account. This is exactly what had been established in the nation of Israel. There, were, there was a priestly division up by the name of Abijah. And these priests would come in. And at the time of the, uh, the Passover or the Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles, all the um, priests would come and they would all be on hand to take care of the festival and the feast and all the sacrifices. But other times than that, they would rotate through usually twice a year for one week. So twice a year for one week, you would come in and you would be at the temple. Now it would have probably, we're going to read here that um, Zacharias of the order of Abijah, that his lot, it came time for him to go into the temple and he's going to come to the altar of incense. And here's the thing. It usually only happened once in your lifetime. So as we read about this, that it, you know, his lot fell to burn incense when he went to the temple of the Lord. Understand, he didn't, this didn't happen a lot. This is something that historians believe probably only would have happened once in a priest's life, that he would be able to come into that place. There are all kinds of other duties that would happen, but to go into the holy place, not the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, but the holy place where the table of showbread is and the candelabra and um, the altar of incense, only once in a lifetime. It's a big deal. This is a very big deal that he gets to go and do this. You can imagine the lead up to this, the run up to this, and the excitement of it and the planning for it. And he's an old man. And now it finally comes. It's estimated that there are some 18,000 priests that tended to the holy place. And so he comes in there. Let's keep on reading. Verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. So incense was symbolic of prayer. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. 
So here's the question. Don't have a, we don't have an answer for it. I think we got a clue. What was he praying for at the hour of incense? Now, you might say, well, he's praying for his son. That would be a really good guess, and it could be. However, when he's told that he's going to have a son, his response is what? Yeah, right. That's not going to happen. I'm an old guy. She's an old gal. This isn't going to happen. Um, so it doesn't really seem like that is his prayer at that moment. So it, probably it's all the prayers they had prayed in those early days of their life, in the early days of their marriage, when she couldn't conceive. Maybe even it's he's praying right now, and Lord, send the Messiah to our country. We, are, we need that Savior. We need that Redeemer. And so maybe it's that prayer that he's answering. Maybe it's both of them that he's answering. Maybe it's both. The, the prayer that had been offered up many years earlier and the prayer that he's offering up, possibly for the Lord to send the deliverer. He says, your prayer has been heard. We offer up prayers, don't we? That sometimes they seem like they just are not being answered in the way, at least the way we want to. It's always being answered. The Lord's answer is, be patient and wait. <laughs> That's an answer. It's just not the answer we like. Sometimes it's a, a quick yes. Sometimes it's a blessed no that we get. But the Lord always hears our prayers. He has heard every one of the prayers you've ever offered up. And there may still be a prayer that you prayed a long, long time ago. And the Lord is, he hasn't forgotten about it. Maybe you have forgotten about it even till right now. Like, oh yeah, I, I can think of some things. But the Lord hasn't forgotten. And he answers our prayers. That doesn't mean he always answers them the way we want them to go. Or we think we want them to go. But he always hears it's important for us to, to see the place of the Lord answering our prayers in a way that he wants to and his timing. Lord, why haven't you allowed my wife, Zacharias, we keep, I'm a wife, Elizabeth, to, to have a baby. I'm a, I'm a priest. I'm blameless. And that's saying something in the days in which he was living, isn't it? I, we keep all your commandments. We obey you. We do the right thing. We have a reputation of being blameless. And you, why won't you answer this prayer? Oh, now, what's the answer? Well, the reason that she's not having a baby now is because I'm going to wait till she's, you know, um, we don't know how old. We're going to wait till she's 80 years old. And then you're going to have a son. Because he's going to be the forerunner. And then the, now the Lord could have told him, but that's, that was the answer. And the Lord didn't tell him. So that's where faith comes in, that we trust the Lord. Remember, we are servants of the Lord. And the requests we make to the Lord are for the things in my life and in your life to be done when and how heaven desires for them to be accomplished. Right? Isn't this how the Lord taught us to pray? Isn't this how the Lord prayed? Not my will, but your will be done. Let things be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the will of heaven? That's what I want it to be. And I, I just want to caution you against railing against the Lord because he, has, because he has not answered you in the timing or in the way that you feel like it should have come. Remember this story. Remember this account. You know, the altar of incense was a, a place where there was coals or embers and they would take this specially made 
incense that was only used to be in the temple and they would throw it on this altar of incense and it would create all of this uh, smoke and it would fill that place and it would become very fragrant and you, if you were anywhere in the area, you would have smelt the fragrance of prayer being lifted up. The fragrance of prayer. And we pray and we ask the Lord and, and, and you know, the embers may be going, but there comes a time in which he throws the incense on it. And when the incense is thrown on our prayers and the answers come, that's when it's a sweet answer. That's when it's a beautiful aroma. There are things we've all prayed for. How many, Risha, if you, have you ever prayed for something you're glad the Lord didn't do? Has anybody? Yeah. We don't know, do we? Sometimes we think we know. And then we look back, we're like, whew, thank you, Lord Jesus. That you did not answer that prayer. That was not a good prayer. He just he heard the prayer. He's like, I'll answer it my own way. And in his own way and his own timing, it's like the incense that hits the embers and just fills the room with smoke. And it is a sweet aroma. Trust the Lord. He knows. So um, we look at verse 13. And it says, um, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer is heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You should call his name John. John names, John, the name John means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh has been gracious. I'm sure we have some Johns out there. Did you know that was the meaning of your name? Yahweh has been gracious. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. You see, sometimes when the Lord is answering your prayers, His timing is not just for you. Other people are going to benefit by the way God answers that prayer in your life. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Elijah was one of the great prophets of the Lord. His, his, the anointing upon him was so amazing. And this was, a, this was a prayer of Elisha, his young protege, when he wouldn't stop following him. He kept trying to send him away. And he said, I'm not going to leave. And he said, well, what is it that you want? He goes, oh, I, I want a double portion of the spirit that's upon you. Was that a prideful thing, saying, I want to be twice as powerful as you? Or was that him saying, I'm half the man in the things of the Spirit that you are. I'm going to need twice as much to do the same job. And I think that it's the, a statement of humility, not a statement of pride. It is interesting, though, that Elisha did exactly twice as many. I haven't counted them up, but I've read it many times. Twice as many miracles as his mentor, Elijah. So he says he's going to go forth in power, and it's going to be to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. You know, Elijah did many great miracles called fire down from heaven and all the rest. But do you know what the power of, uh, of Elijah was going to be upon John to do? Even, um, even something more miraculous is to take a heart and to turn it around. To follow the Lord. I mean, we, we get impressed, and we should be impressed with those 
physical miracles that defy laws and override the laws of nature and so forth, and we stand back and say, only God can do that. But, the, but where power is needed is to turn a heart. It took the power of God himself working through a minister in, in and around you or a family member to turn your heart around. It took the power of God, the Spirit of the Lord at work. The Lord wants our hearts to be turned towards him. I want the things you want, Lord. The things that you want are the things that I want, even if I don't know I want them. You know, sometimes it seems like, you know, just in, you know, our government could function a lot better if they, you know, there could be a thing, you know, presidents could be given line item veto power, right? They could take out something that they don't like with all the, pork that gets put into legislation. It's like, no, 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 well, this is about this, but we're not going to do this. And they can line through it. It's never, never going to happen, but it's something that comes up every now and then. Line item veto power. You want the Lord to have line item veto power in your prayer. That you can pray and say, Lord, I pray for this, this, and this. But Lord, you know. You know everything. I know something. And even that I'm not sure of, but you know all things. <laughs> You know all things, Lord, so I'm asking for this. However, if that's a dumb request, just, just put a line through it and, and fix it. Make it what it may, do what ought to be done. And I think this is such a great way for us to pray. That's having your heart turned towards the Lord. You're so fully confident in his ways and in his methods and his desires for you. You can trust him. Is your heart turned towards the Lord? What's, where's your heart turned towards tonight? What are the things that you really desire, that you really are after? What's the thing that you want more than anything else? I hope and I imagine for many of you it is, it's this very thing. I want my heart to be turned towards you, Lord. I don't want to be disobedient. I want to be ready. I want my heart to be prepared for you. As we move on, verses 18 through 25, Zacharias doubts, but nothing is too hard for God. So he's heard that, you know, in his near retirement age, he's going to, or at least late in his life, whatever his age was, um, he's going to have a son. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Now, we don't have tone, but if we could read tone, it would sound like this. Yeah, right, how can I know that that's going to happen? It was full of doubt, and you'll see that is not a conjecture on my part. It's what the scripture says. It says, for I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Again, I, no tone, but I'm thinking it's kind of a, what, who are you to be questioning what I'm saying? I'm bringing you good news and you are shooting it down? Do you know anybody like that? But behold, you want to know how? Here's how you can know how. You will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So the last thing that he got to say for nine months or more was, I don't believe God. And he had to think on that for all those months 
<laughs> Verse 21, And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as his days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, The Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So you get a little taste culturally of what it would have been like to have been her age and not had a child. And the implication, the reproach was, eh, you probably have done something wrong. And that's why you don't have a child. And this is what they would have had to have dealt with culturally. And so Zacharias doubts, but God is able, right? There's nothing that is too hard for him. We'll come back to that point in just a moment when we get down to Mary. Verse 26, some more good news. And that is the Messiah is coming. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. I can't imagine what that must have felt like. Every promise that had ever had any significance or meaning to the nation of Israel was going to come through the child she would give birth to. Wow. All that's going to happen? Yeah, highly favored one for sure. The Lord was being gracious to her. What she's receiving the promises of is the Davidic covenant. That there would always be one to sit upon the throne of David forever. 2 Samuel 7.16, if you want to go check it out for yourself. And he says, he's going to sit on the throne of your father David. She was a descendant of David, as was Joseph, a descendant of David. And he's going to rule over the house of Jacob forever. Listen, that did not come into complete fulfillment during Jesus' lifetime in his first coming. That's going to happen at his second coming. This is why I am a fierce believer, not like I want to fight you over a believer, but I am a fierce believer that there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ upon this earth and over the people of Israel because he never fulfilled this. And, and when she heard this, I guarantee you she was thinking of it in the most literal sense. He was... A literal child was going to be born to a, a literal virgin and to, you know, to a, in the city that was a literal city, Bethlehem. He performed the very miracles, the literal miracles that was prophesied by Isaiah. He would do all of his first coming um, uh, ministry was a literal fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And then he went to heaven. He ascended to heaven and there left many other prophecies unfulfilled. 
And I believe they will be fulfilled in exactly the same way in a very literal fashion, in a very literal manner. And that will be happen. It will be fully realized, um, verses 32 and 33, when Jesus comes back a second time. So this is a promise of salvation. It's dark times with Herod, but good news, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer is coming. And just as this was glad tidings and it was good news to Mary and to Zacharias and Elizabeth and to the nation of Israel, we also can have an expectation in our life that God shows up and that he works and he moves in our life. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. As a child of God, he shows up in your dark times when Herod is on the throne. Whatever that dark thing is, the Lord is there to see you through and to, to work it out for good. And this is where we need to have faith and believe in the Lord. We keep on going, verses 34 through 38. And Mary believes but seeks understanding. Now, John did not believe and he mocked, essentially. Uh, Mary believes, but she seeks understanding. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? I haven't known a man sexually. And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who, is, who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Based upon the culture of that day and the history we read, she would have been somewhere around the age of 13 to 15. That's usually when people, uh, you know, the betrothals would have happened. 13 to 15 years old. All right, ladies. Can you, you know, maybe some of you are that age. If you're not, dial it back. 13 or 15. You just had the encounter with the angel, and you're on your way home. <laughs> Might be a little difficult, you think? Might be hard to explain what's going on? I mean, th this is, I mean, we can just kind of gloss over this, but, I mean, she's full of faith. She believes, but wow, I mean... You know, maybe she would have just come in so excited at believing that everybody else would be just as happy and just as responsive in faith as she was. But she was the one that saw the angel, not mom and dad, right? Not the rest of the family. And so she believes, though. It's interesting, if you can contrast Zacharias to Mary, they both are told something that's very hard. You're going to have a son in your old age, well past the age of, of having uh, children, and you're going to have a son, and you've never known a man. You got on the old, and you got on the young. I mean, complication around having a child on the old end and on the young end. You got some that are married, some that are not. I mean, there's just an interesting parallel. But the response is very different. For John, he says, yeah, right, how can this happen? Mary says, okay, that's awesome. How is that going to happen? You see, if she would have had a, uh, 
an unbelief in her heart, I'm sure we would have had an indication of it just like we did with John. But she is one that just believes the Lord. She caught what was said for, in verse 37, for with God, nothing will be impossible. What's impossible when God's at work and is on the move? Nothing is impossible. God can do all things. Um, As a matter of fact, something very similar was said at another kind of crisis pregnancy, if you will. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. And you have Sarah and Abraham. And they are told that they're going to have a son. And they laugh. She laughs. Sarah laughs. Yeah, right, she says. And the Lord's response is, anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. So that, that, that very similar type of language, nothing is too hard. How about in Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, when God tells Moses to go and be his spokesman and to lead the children of Israel out and to speak to Pharaoh and to speak to the children of Israel, and he says, I can't do that. I'm terrible at public speaking. I just, I mean, I've got a stutter, my thoughts get all crossed up, I get nervous, um, I get tongue-tied, I don't know what to do. Exodus 4, verses 10 through 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since. You have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute? The deaf, the seeing, or the blind, have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and will teach you what you shall say. Nothing is too hard. We often discount ourselves from the things and the works that God wants to do in and through our life because it seems like it's too hard. If it was easy, then who gets the credit? You get the credit. But if it's well beyond you, Like with Zacharias and Elizabeth, or with like Mary, or like with Abraham and Sarah, or like with Moses. When the the Lord loves to call us to things that are well above our pay grade. How about Gideon? He called Gideon because he was the weakest. Because nobody would have ever looked at Gideon and said, well, of course we won in battle. It's Gideon. Everybody said, we won in battle and Gideon was leading? This is God. (laughs) This is what the Lord likes to do. He likes to get glory. And we often dismiss our involvement and maybe uh, in what the Spirit of God is leading us into because of it's too hard. When we say it's too hard, it's too hard for who? It's too hard for me. And so we are measuring the ability to accomplish a task by myself. Or by the person that's doing it. Is it harder for God to supply a nickel so you can make it through the toll booth? And you're digging through and praying, Lord, just give me a nickel. Help me find a nickel. And you're you're going through that toll booth on the road. Or is it more difficult for the Lord to supply the $500 you need to be able to make the mortgage payment? What's more difficult? The nickel or $500? God's not tested. He's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, which means there is never anything that he has to do that makes a dent in his power. That happens to us. That happens to us. 
None of us are surprised um, that the building was built because we hired professionals, construction crews to come in and do this, and they did all the work. It took longer than we thought, but it's, we're not surprised. But if I would have stood up and said, you know what, we're going to build a building and we're going to try something new. We have a, a, you know, a dozen trained monkeys that have been, uh, been you know, at the university, have been developing you know, their construction skills, and they're going to build it. Well, that's impossible. Why? Because the agency of the one who's doing it. We have no problem in trained professionals doing a job they're trained to do. That can get done. They have the ability. The agency doing it has the ability. Trained monkeys, I'll come and watch, but that's a terrible idea. Because they don't have the ability to do it. So when God tells us to do something, we say, we can't do that. It's too hard. It's because we're looking at, at who? We're looking at this agent. When really we need to be looking at the Lord and what he's called us to do. We like to attempt things we can accomplish. Who likes to fail? We like to set out on goals that we, they might be a stretch, but we, they can be accomplished. But the Lord doesn't work like that. He does things that are too hard for us, and so we get to experience his power at work and his ways at work in the miraculous. Well, in verses 39 through 56, um, we see that the faith of Elizabeth and Mary is evidenced in worship. So we have two poetic praise songs that are penned by Elizabeth and then by Mary. Verse 39 through 45 is Elizabeth's worship song. Now Mary arose in those days and went to the hill, into the hill country with haste to the city of Judah. Again, just this is a detail. This is accurate. You read this as well, the hill country of Judah. Well, if you go to Judah, guess what? It's a hill country. It's not the plains. He set forth an orderly account. And you can tell that he's writing to somebody who's not really familiar. Theophilus is not really familiar with, um, with this region. So he says, hey, it's the hill country. That's where they were. I mean, if you're writing to somebody in Jerusalem, you don't need to make that point. Because they walk up and down the hills every day of their life. But for Theophilus, he's including this detail. And Mary entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe, that would be John, right, the Baptist, leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. How do you think Mary felt right there? Oh, well, I am not losing my mind. Okay. And there's that, that prophecy, uh, this prophetic poem, if you will, that just is spoken over her. Blessed is she who believed. Doesn't say it. Just my mind works in a certain track. I just wonder if she's thinking about her husband who she's not been able to talk to for at least five months, who didn't believe. John, why are you mute? You question God? You know, she's going through this whole thing. How many times did she go to speak to him and he couldn't speak because he didn't believe? And she says, 
Oh, you, you young girl, 13 years old, you believed. Blessed is she who believed. When you were told this amazing thing, I know you believed because if you didn't believe, you wouldn't be in a conversation with me right now. You'd be mute like my husband. So she was told and she believed. It is always a blessing to believe in the Lord. Trust him. So she praises the Lord for being able to be part of the plan that he had to redeem Israel. She commends Mary for her faith. Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. She's carrying his seed, the seed, the Messiah. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. About the time that she had her baby or right after she had, Elizabeth had had her baby, she went home. She's just worshiping the Lord. She's thanking the Lord that he has had favor upon her, but also upon the nation of Israel and how all peoples are going to be blessed through Abraham's seed which at that very moment she was carrying. So she hung there for three months, getting the fellowship, getting the encouragement. In verse 57 through 66, Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who is called by this name. And she said, No, but my mute husband wrote down for me that his name was going to be John, right? And so verse 62, So they made signs to his father what he would have him called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. Yahweh is gracious. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. We wrap it up here. Verses 67 through 80, where we read about the preparation and the work that John is going to do for the coming Messiah. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. I mean, where's his faith now? You know, John's born. The Messiah is not born yet. He doesn't know who the Messiah is. Maybe he knows it's going to be, you know, his relative Mary. I'm sure they probably had that discussion. But that child's not born yet. And he's already speaking, it's happened. 
It's no longer questioning what God might do. He's now stating it as if it has already happened. Verse 69, and has raised up the horn, horn being a a sign of strength, of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. When he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who had been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So, I mean, there's the covenant of David that he mentioned. He's now going to mention the covenant of, made to Abraham. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in the spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. And so um, he prophesies over the events. Malachi, Malachi 3.1, gave a prophecy of this young um, uh, baby John that had just come on the scene. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there was going to be this forerunner that would come before the Messiah, and it is John. And they are relatives, and there is a three-month age difference, and they are both born under miraculous circumstances. The promise of a Redeemer and a Savior was given to Israel with Abraham, and with David. And now it's being realized. Now there was still many years we were going to go before they would see the ministry of Jesus. But it was coming. The birth of John was a clear prophetic announcement that the Messiah is coming. And there will be those events. We just finished the book of Revelation not so long ago, and we read about all of those things that are going to happen. Two witnesses are going to be one. The, the Antichrist is another sign before the second coming of Christ. But I believe the, the church is going to be raptured before the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. And I believe we have a clear indicator, too, that we are living in times that will ought to alert us. And the number one thing is this is that Israel is back in her land upon the mountains which long were desolate. Read Ezekiel 35 through 38. Take some time to read through them. Study them. Here the Lord prophesies that in the latter days he'll bring his children Israel back into the land. They were out of their land from around 70 AD. Um, Not completely, but in... You know, there's always was a small remnant, but as a functioning nation since 70 A.D., they stopped. They weren't in the land until 1948. We live in days in which this has happened in recent times. As we wrap it up here, I'm just saying, I think we've got a sign that we're living in the last days. And God wants us to be ready. You know, God works through vessels of honor, Elizabeth and Zacharias. Godly people. Mary, she was upright. John, the greatest born among men. Jesus, of course, right? 
the most wonderful vessel ever, God himself, God in the flesh. But God wants to do a work in your life, but he wants you to be set apart, and he wants you to be a vessel of honor. We close with this verse, and then we're going to pray. 2 Timothy 2, 19 through 21. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, and some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Isn't that where you you want to be? Useful, set apart for every good work. Not some good works, not just the good works that you have dreamed up and the things you want to do, but for everyone that God has predetermined for you to walk in. Well, depart from iniquity. Be a vessel of honor. Now, are you saying that we, we earn our salvation? No, you can't earn it. But God works through vessels that are sanctified and set apart for him. And so he's looking. His eyes are still going to and fro about the whole earth, searching to find a heart that is loyal to him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. That's that's a promise. God's looking for vessels of honor, and he wants to put his spirit upon you. Let's surrender ourselves afresh here tonight to the Lord. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son, the Redeemer, and that you work through people, an old couple in the hills of Judea or in the hills of Nazareth, finding a a young virgin. Lord, thank you that you use just everyday people. And Lord, we're here and we just want to say we want to be sanctified. We want to lay aside any iniquity that would render us a vessel of dishonor. Lord, we name your name. Therefore, we want to depart from iniquity. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, to do those things that you've called us to do.